The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, a man with more money than sense, Mark Bickney, and with me as always is my loyal co-host, a man with more sense than a compost bin, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good. I'm very glad to hear this. So we continue on with our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. That doesn't really make a good acronym, does it? It does not. A URIS. A URIS. A URIS. Okay, so our URIS this week is Spirit Island. A year ago, we talked about Spirit Island. And uh, let me just start off with a, a rather leading question, Walker. You've played Spirit Island several times in the past year, haven't you? I, I I wouldn't say several, at least twice. Under what circumstances? I mean, how cruel are our friends that they would make you play Spirit Island? I know, they know. Yeah, just they're awful people. <laughs> we knew this already, though. Fair enough. I mean, I okay. I've played Spirit Island many times uh, over the course of the past year. It's getting the recognition that it quite frankly deserves. I was a little concerned that it might not find its audience. It's been picked up as a favorite by many, many people. The expansion was successfully kickstarted. I've played with the expansion material several times in the latest round of playtesting. I, I liked some of the spirits a great deal. My favorite probably being Grinning Trickster Stirs Up Trouble, who actually just can flood the board with a series of somewhat random effects and your challenge is just to make, make good out of it. Uh, not quite as engaging as drowning people, but, uh, you know, then again, what is? Exactly. And has your opinion changed over the course of the past year, Walker? No. No. Have yet to lose. It's still just a breeze through. Maybe one day it'll get hard. <laughs> I don't recall that being your primary objection at the time, though. It was one of your objections. It was. It, I, it's, just, I, it's, out of, it's just a game not for me, that's all. I just... I wonder if it's the card cycling that I don't like. I'm not sure. Sure, sure. I have an affinity for an infirmity. Affirmity? Infirmity. I have an infirmity to card cycling games like Dead of Winter, Police Precinct, Spirit Island. That's an interesting collection of games. Anyway, let's not rehash the reviews if I say that our opinions have not changed. And that's what we thought of Spirit Island then, and that's what we think of Spirit Island now. At any rate, this is a uh, podcast about board games, which I possibly should have said before launching into talking about Spirit Island, but intros are difficult. Could have been like a traveling podcast. Come to Spirit Island. <laughs> Find yourself. Find new people. So, this is a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which this week is Teotihuacan City of Gods. And our topic for this week is how far is too far for a board game? And uh, just just to give you a little bit of a, of a presage for this, this is a series of embarrassing stories that I've prepared anyway. I, I don't know what Walker is going to contribute to the conversation about dumb stuff that I've done to get a board game. 
And on that note, let us begin with the games we played last week. Walker, what did you have the pleasure of playing last week? Or displeasure, case depending. Oh, everything was good. We got Gugong out to the table yet again, so that's good. It's when we played a game multiple times in order to prepare it for a podcast, and we pull it out again even after the fact. It just means it must be a great game. have yet to find a huge flaw in the game whatsoever, except for the fact that Jade is a sucker's game. Yep, we've seen every every game someone seems to push for it, we've discovered, and it never pays off. But other than that, looks fantastic, plays fantastic, everyone always has fun. That is Gugong. Got to play Quartermaster General Prelude again. I'm somewhat disappointed that once again you had uh, you you didn't have a chance to to give this a shot. Uh, you were probably off doing something much less fun. This is uh, yet another expansion to the Quartermaster General base game. This being the six-player game about World War II, and I really it's really solidifying my opinion that Prelude is an excellent, excellent expansion that doesn't change the fundamental tempo of the game. Card play is still agonizing, and everything still has a very serious opportunity cost in that you only play one card per round. But what it does is, in a very interesting, very rules light way skips some of the early boring build-up turns and it adds yet more historical flavor it adds a lot of the sort of uh, historical events that really were the prelude to world war ii things like the remilitarization of the rhineland the molotov ribbentrop pact all these kinds of things find their way into the prelude game and every uh, you know I, I was kind of leery about introducing quartermaster general to new players because the way that we like to play quartermaster general or at least i do now is with prelude and with the air marshal expansion and introducing new players to a game with two expansions already in can often be a recipe for disaster but quartermaster general works it's an incredibly straightforward accessible design the only rules problems and i i think we mentioned this when we did our overall review of the quartermaster general series the only rules problems that you have now are with people who've played multiple games in the system and they start confusing the different supply rules and i i don't do that personally but i I, i'm usually at the table the one with the most experience with the system and i certainly can't blame somebody whose only prior exposure to the system is quartermaster general 1914 and think okay how does supply work in this one again and that's eminently reasonable but the prelude itself I'll repeat it. Very good bang for your buck in terms of additional complexity. Doesn't add much to the playing time, especially because it jumpstarts those early rounds. And so, if anything, it keeps the game playing time roughly to parity. I'm really looking forward to showing it to you. I hope you'll get a chance to try it, because I really do think that it's excellent work. I'm also really looking forward to playing Quartermaster General the Cold War, which will be in our hands sometime after Chinese New Year. Which will be in about several years, I'm sure. Yeah. I got tricked into playing a GMT game called Triumph and Tragedy. Oh, dear Lord. And let me tell you, there was definitely some triumph, and there was, in fact, some tragedy as okay, well. Okay, why don't we start at the very beginning? All right, let, let's let's slow down for a second. Well, my mother met my father. Uh, what is your beef with GMT games? Let's no, cover was, this. I, well, I, I was no, thinking, you do have a beef with GMT games. I do. Games. No, I was, I was saying, I was, I was thinking of uh, an intro to this this part was that I, I opened up this, this mustardy, yellow, pinky, not quite red... A blue sort of purpley box because you know they don't know what basic colors are and we played this fantastic game called triumph and tragedy <laughs> i really do sometimes get the impression that you want the entire world to look like ffg games it's not that like we we talked about this briefly after the game and i and i just feel as though that the games would be more accessible to the general public if it just had a more welcoming cover that when you look at that cover all you see is dry war game straightforward 
like you said, you know, I'm sure that appeals to their market, but I'm saying if they want to appeal to a broader market or get people to try their games, then maybe just have a more welcoming cover. I genuinely don't know anything about marketing or shelf appeal or anything like that, but they've got an established fan base that's well-earned because GMT games are not universally good. Uh, their editorial, their interior, interior editorial policies are all over the map, and sometimes they have good developers working with designers, and sometimes they don't. This is, you know, evident in the wildly disparate qualities of rule books, and you know how many living rules are required, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know how many people they really want to target with like impulse buy buys of Triumph and Tragedy. I don't, I don't necessarily know that it would work or 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 be good for them long term. At any rate, I'm 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 just hoping that maybe for the third edition for Philistines like you, they can have a picture of Winston Churchill riding a unicorn, driving a lance into the heart of a dragon, and maybe yes, that'll yes, be let's go. Let's go totally the other way because that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's exactly. So what anyway, Triumph and Tragedy, in my opinion, is sort of Axe and Allies on steroids, or Axe and Allies Advanced. Those who have have not played Axe and Allies or Triumph and Tragedy. It's it's Axe and Allies, but you get to upgrade your units and it's all your units are all hidden and there's a huge economic game being played on the side as well. I'm a sucker for games that integrate diplomacy, economics, and warfare well. And really, to my mind, there are two games that do it exceptionally well. One of them is Senji, which is a 90-minute Euro game. And then there's Triumph and Tragedy, which is a, which is a three-player game about World War II. Although that, even that, I think, is doing the game a disservice, because Triumph and Tragedy ta- starts in 1936. And it is possible, and indeed I've played some games, for the, for the game to end without anyone firing a shot. And that is very much the game's credit. This isn't one of those games where you turtle for two hours, and then there's a massive blowout at the end. Sometimes that happens, but I, you know, I've, I've never played a game like that. The game, def- the game system definitely allows for that. And it's a block game, and it's designed by Craig Bazank, who's done a lot of block games before. He's done a lot of work with Columbia Games. They mostly do block games. This is for people who uh, know about the, uh, the, the war game market. And Triumph and Tragedy, all the military units are blocked, so they're not, they're not hidden. It's just you don't know what they are. And the unit mix, the, the, the aspect of combined arms in Triumph and Tragedy is brilliant. The production model, whereby you pay for military units, is brilliant. Whereby you pay for the cards that power your diplomacy and your economic development is brilliant. It is very flexible in terms of how you approach things. You're not locked into the West and the Soviets versus the Axis powers. You're not locked into what actually happened historically in terms of the diplomatic situation. And for what it's worth, as a minor aside, I actually think that that models the historical events better than a lot of the so-called, you know, more accurate consims where just because the various Eastern and Baltic states went the way they did, that they're locked into that forever and always in every rendition of the Second World War. I actually think that 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 degree of flexibility is much more historically accurate. There's room for lots of, you know, there's room for the histor- the actual historical events. You know, it's very easy for Paris to fall very quickly to an Axis offensive. It's possible for things to, to, to get drawn out. There's a possibility for a Normandy landing, which is more or less what happened in our game. Uh, our game was ended just to give you a sense of how uh, historically flexible and wild it can get. Uh, the Western powers actually declared war on the Axis in 1938. 
and engaged in protracted fighting in the Ruhr Valley. That initially went well for the West, but then the Axis fought back. During this period, the Soviets started building up their military force along the border. And as I recall, the Soviets declared war on the Axis as well, didn't they? They did. In 30, was that 41 or 40? I can't remember. 40. Okay, in 1940. And then the Soviets declared war on the West in 42 in an attempt to conquer India. But the brave boys uh, from, uh, from, from the Anzac forces fought back, captured the southern industrial heartland of, of the Soviets in Baku. And then when the, the third wave of American reinforcements landed in Berlin, securing a Western victory by, by military forces. Anyway, this was, I could go on for hours about triumph and tragedy. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant design. You mean for another hour? Oh, jeez. So what, <laughs> what What else have you got to say about Triumph and Tragedy then, Walker? Well, you mean I get to talk too? Well, yes. Okay, great. Well, I'm, what I'm just going to say is that it is a game for three players and only three players, and it does a fantastic job at that. It seems very long, but we talked about it afterwards, the fa- afterwards and it sort of needs to be that length because it needs to give two of the players the impression that they have time to do something. Whereas if it was a shorter game, then they would jump over Germany almost immediately because they could see that Germany was getting ahead. Whereas if, because it's a longer game, they have this uh, perception that they have time to stop them in the future. Yeah, well, there's definitely time for the ebb and flow. And one of the reasons why it was a longer game, we ended up, our game was about five hours after the rules explanation and setup. And that is definitely on the longer end. Most of the other games I've played of this have been closer to three and a half uh, to three hours even. This is because the war did start early and everyone was involved in the war for much of the game because, as I say, the game can end economically uh, or by technological development. And just for context, although the West did win by a military victory, the Soviets were also very close to military victory in a couple places. And had the West not conquered the two capitals that they did, on the very following turn, we did the what-if scenario, and the Axis would have developed the atom bomb in early 1944, and that would have ended the game, too. Anyway, I've seen games end in 1939. Those games are obviously much shorter, you know, purely economic and diplomatic games, much shorter. Anyhow, uh, I was actually a, a playtester for Triumph and Tragedy for five hot seconds. I was the worst playtester ever. The designer was very, very kind. He shipped me wooden blocks, and he sent me stickers and everything, and then I put in one or two sessions before I had to move, and my life fell apart, and I just wasn't able to participate anymore. But Triumph and Tragedy is one of my all-time favorite games. I only get to play it very rarely, largely because people around here hate GMT, I think exclusively because of their cover designs, and I think that's a shame. And that's our feature game of the week. Oh, come Triumph on! Triumph and Tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> what else did you play this week, Mark? So I played a game called Triumph and Tragedy, and I'd like to spend about <laughs> 10 minutes talking about why it's great. Uh, so I played a game called Good Critters. Good Critters is the American localization of a German game called Tiefe Taschen, uh, which is, in the German edition, it was a game about corrupt politicians. In the American version, it's a game about gangster woodland creatures. I wish I could play the German version, for what it's worth, but Good Critters was pretty good. It was kind of an elaboration on cash and guns, uh, or some of the elements of... Uh, Junta. If you've ever played the original Junta, Junta had a great mechanism whereby someone was in charge of divvying up loot, and then people got to decide whether they were happy with their cut. 
It was a lot more going on, but that was the core element that was cool, and Good Critters preserves that. Yeah, it was all right. I mean, it's one of those social games where you have to decide to pick on somebody in order for it to start getting fun. You know, it can get very boring and procedural if everyone's paranoid about making enemies and just trying to be fair and and, and preserve their status. So you really have to, at some point, some turn say, you know what? The person to my left... I'm just going to try to make them the enemy of the table, and I'm going to cut them out of the loot, and I'm just going to antagonize them and see what happens. And under in that aegis, it was it was it was okay. I think I I you know between it and cash and guns, I'd probably give it the slight edge. Good critters was slightly better because it had a few return order problems, and uh, it was it was slightly more fluid. But it doesn't have foam guns though, which is a bit of a problem. Nothing like pointing foam guns at your family members. It's true, and that was good critters. All right, Mark and I got to play Heroes of Tirnoth. It is the new FFG implementation of Warhammer Quest, the card game, now that they've lost the Games Workshop license. And it's much, much of the same. It's not a game for me. It's, it, it, it's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But I did not enjoy it overly. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I'm not super jazzed about Heroes of Terranoth. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's pretty good. I do think it is an improvement over the Warhammer Quest Adventure card game because in the latter game you had basically two options of how to play. You could either play the campaign game, in which you didn't get to access any better toys over the course of a given of a given session, and there was this awkward paperwork element and sorting out cards and things like that, or you could play the self-contained Delve Quest, which was a cobbled-together hash of a scenario that didn't really work very well. In Heroes of Terranoth, at least, you now have designated points during an adventure where you can level up and choose upgrades. And I, I just prefer that model. You know, the same way that Too Many Bones handles it. Uh, you know, for, forget an overall campaign mode. Just let people upgrade their toys over the course of a single playing and forget any element of paperwork. And so that's the key difference, I think, in terms of uh, Heroes of Terranoth. I really don't like the Terranoth setting, but then again, I don't, didn't really, don't really like the Warhammer setting either, so that's a wash. But I do really like a lot of the work of Adam and Brady uh, Sadler. They're the people who did both Warhammer Quest Adventure Card Game and Heroes of Terranoth. And uh, I'll, I think it's good for, for another few play, uh, plays. I think it's reasonably good for a laugh, and I'm uh, sorry you didn't really enjoy it. Yeah, well, I think it was, they did a great job of making all the classes feel like that class. Like we had the, the fighter who could coax everything in and attack everything you know, completely, and everyone else was a supporting character, you know, helped them untap and healed them up and, you know, shot things at a distance. So I think they, you know, everything is fine about it. It just just seems to me like if you're doing like an adventure game, they seem to go a little bit light on the actual story and what you're actually doing and and uh, why monsters were doing, you know, I mean, there wasn't that sort of like that flow of, you know, this is happening because of something else. It was just sort of, you know, you kept going through these actions, kill the monsters, get the new monsters, kill the monsters and repeat. Sure. I That does remind me, though, of one element that I think is really good. And that is if you have a full complement of four heroes in, in, in the game, in theory, you can play with any number of heroes from two to four. But I really do think that the game shines with four, whether that's four players or, or two player controlling two each or whatever. Uh, the different classes, the way they interact with each other and the way they cooperate with each other in that way that they have class specialization. I think that's when the game is at its best for what it's worth. Agreed. And that is Heroes of Turnoff. So I got my copy of The Estates in this week. You don't we, say. And we got to uh, get a game together. I'm not sure if it played the same as I remembered it. I think it was just we only had the one plane, and I think some of the concepts were different. Like uh, it's very, it plays very much differently than other games because it has a closed economic 
uh, system where everyone gets all of the money of the, of the entire game right off the beginning. It gets div- divided up equally, and there's no extra money added to the system. That just you know changes hands. Some people's going to get some people are going to get more money than others, and you really need to examine the board at the beginning of the game and find out you know what cubes are going to score and what you need to do. And the fact that you lock down colors right at the beginning. So it's a sort of like, it has a whole bunch of, you know, interesting new mechanisms that, you know, I think some people found uninteresting and or weren't used to. I don't know if I'd call it new mechanisms. I mean, The Estates, after all, is a reprint of Neue Heimat, which is a, a relatively older game in the context of our uh, constantly churning new release schedule. But the way I would characterize it is that it has a lot of front-loaded decisions. Some of your early moves are going to be by far the most consequential because it's in your very early moves that you're going to decide what colors you're going to score. And as a function of those early decisions, whether you make good ones or bad ones, you might end up in circumstances later on where you have a lot of forced plays, where more or less, no matter uh, you know what you do, something bad is going to happen to you. And it's really a question of trying to figure out how to exert the auctions to either minimize the bleed or set yourself up for future actions, which can be more consequential. And that combination, I find a little displeasing, a little disquieting. Auction games already tend to have a lot of front-loaded decision-making because, you know, for your first few games or even in the first few turns, you don't know what things are worth. And the Estates really leans into that, I think. That's my impression as to why some people didn't necessarily take to it. I, It was reasonably quick. I'd be interested in trying it again. But I, I do have to say that for punishing auction games, I can think of alternatives that I would prefer. And the added elements of board play that the estates had didn't really grab me particularly. Uh, so it was interesting, uh, you know, a design that I respect more than I enjoy. Very, I very much want to play it again, get that feeling back again. And I think once people have tried it a few times, then they'll understand how it works and I think we'll appreciate it more. Last week I had a couple very different games of Gaslands, and I've been talking a lot about Gaslands, I know, but... They were both illustrative, I think, because they were both showing off Gaslands sometimes at its worst, and yet I still had a blast playing it both times. We played one game which was an eight-player free-for-all, which had loads and loads of downtime, crazy craziness uh, going on. And there was even more downtime for me because the way I play Gaslands is extremely conservative. As we talked about in our Gaslands review, you can roll skid dice to, to shift up or shift down and do crazy maneuvers. I tend to avoid that much of the time. I just, you know, move and shift up by the uh, by, by default template actions. And so my turns tended to be literally five seconds long. It's like, okay, take this template, move, I'm done. And despite that, uh, I still had a reasonably good time. And I got to say, Eight-player free-for-alls are not really what miniatures games are are generally meant to do. So even at its very worst, I think Gaslands uh, shines. And the game took two hours with eight players, some of whom had never even played the game before. So that, you know, that, that, that's amazing. And I also played uh, some of the other scenarios. There's one scenario where you run over zombies, and that's the way you score points. And whoever has the most run over zombies at the end of the game wins. I think that the, the, that scenario had some termination problems and some weird interactions with disqualified vehicles. Basically, if you're carrying zombies and you get blowed up, you drop some of your zombies. But if you're carrying zombies and you run off the edge of the map, you keep everything. And so that created a perverse incentive for, for some very strange actions. Anyway, despite that, had a lot of fun. If you have already picked up Gaslands, there's a new free expansion called Time Extended 3. I suggest you take a look. It introduces some new interesting stuff. If you haven't tried Gaslands, why the heck not? So that was more Gaslands. All right. Now that you said Gaslands, remind me of what a comparison I wanted to make was 
I don't even have my list that we played Hero Realms. I talked about Hero Realms two weeks ago, and then, and, you know, a complete flip-flop. You know, our first scenario was fantastic, had a lot of fun, was waiting to play it again, looking forward to playing it again. And then the second installment was terrible. Like, it brought in these rules where, you know, you don't get the money, you know, like, reduce money so you can't buy cards. And then another card comes up and says you can't play action cards. Just, like, mechanisms that, you know, make the game unfun, that take you out of the game, that make you don't have a turn. It made no sense, and we looked through the rules, we, you know, one of these things where we had to stop and say, you know, we're, we must be doing something wrong and, and we weren't, it's just was not a fun scenario. Based on what I heard, you tried it twice just to make sure you were doing it right. And the second time you actually just called it in the middle because you were just, that, that was the third time. Like, oh. It was, it was, wow. it was like, because the, like after the first one, you have like two options, like chase this guy or chase that way, that guy. So we played, you know, chase the one guy, tried that twice then said, okay, well, maybe we're not supposed to win that. Maybe it's supposed to be that hard because you were supposed to, you know, chase this other guy. So we go back to that and it has the same card mix, you know, you know, uh, you know, discard all your cards or can't spend money or can't play any of your cards. And it's just like, well, you know what? It just was so weird. And unfortunately it was a, not a fun experience. Yeah, I wasn't there. I can't comment, but it definitely, it wouldn't surprise me if a game as simple as a realms game might start breaking down the moment you try to elaborate it a little bit, a little bit too much. Game the the incredibly script, stripped down deck builders like the realms games, like the like shards of infinity. You know, as as you would say, they're good for what they are, and if they try to be something else, then maybe it won't work. That's right. Agreed. So those are the games we played last week. Let's move on to the news and why it doesn't matter. All right. So first off. I have a game announcement is Metal Gear Solid. We all love Metal Gear Solid. and Do Mar- we? And do we, though? We do. Do we really? And it also comes with Mark's favorite designer, Emerson Matsushi, because Mark loves Spectre Ops and Century Spice. And I'm sure this is a game that we're all looking forward to playing. Although it does. I like those games, and I like uh, Metal Gear Solid, so this is a game that I'm actually looking forward to see how it plays out. Hmm. Who's putting that out? Yeah, it's a game being put out by IDW. Okay. Well, we're no longer in the era of all licensed games being terrible, so... We'll we'll have to wait and see. Will the board game version of Solid Snake be voiced by David Hayter or the new guy? Maybe the new guy. Okay. On to another game. I'm not sure what this expansion is for, but it rang a bell, so I wanted to bring it up. Maybe Mark would be able to uh, fill me in a little bit more. It's a game called Terra Mystica. It's getting a new expansion. So from what I read is that it was a game that was, it was sort of like the the game that came before Gaia Project. <laughs> Some people played it, but then they brought out Gaia Project, which was way better than this Mystica of Terra. And now they, it's getting an expansion, which I thought was weird. So I was wondering if you had anything, any other information about it. Some people still prefer Terra Mystica. There are, you know, insofar as Gaia Project and Terra Mystica are different games, those could theoretically be grounds for preferring one over the other. I don't share that preference, but I, you know, I understand at least where it's coming from. The thing that I find weird is that, as I recall, the second expansion for Terra Mystica will not be compatible with the races of the first expansion for Terra Mystica. It's true. All kidding aside, I am looking forward to having more Terra Mystica stuff even even though uh, Guy Project is a superior game in all ways. <laughs> but no, Terra Mystic as well. And I, I read the whole thing, that, that statement as well, and I don't understand why they would want to exclude some of that. Maybe they're just taking such a, a leap in a different direction that some of those abilities and things won't 
you know, are in the way. So they're just going to make this completely separate and different. Sure. On the topic of expansion announcements, there is currently a Kickstarter running for a new expansion to Shadow Rift. The Shadow Rift expansion is called Boomtown. Uh, for fans of Letterkenny, I don't think they're referring to the Boomtown character in Letterkenny. Uh, I don't think there's a Fisky, Fisky card either, but I might, you know, to be frank, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds about this, as I often am about such things. When I initially reviewed the second edition of Shatterrift when it first came out, and I complained and kind of lost my temper about the absence of proper rules documentation for the new expansion content, the designer showed up and to his credit said, oh, this is an oversight. We're going to, you know, this, this, is, this was an unfortunate situation. He commented directly on the review. And since then, in the years since, the new expansions have not come with rules documents. They've introduced new card types, no rules documentation. This is presumably a cost-saving measure, so they don't have to include a, a, another type of, of uh, printed element. And I've asked repeatedly the, the designer whether this new expansion will have any rules documentation, you know, preferably all enough rules documentation to, to cover the previous stuff as well, just to clarify how the new card types work and such. And uh, so far, there's been no answer, which I take to be a, a pretty clear no, that it won't. And this is a Game Salute gig, and Game Salute has received a lot of criticism in the past for a number of cost-cutting measures, and I can only assume that this is just another one. So do take a look at Shadow Rift. We both like Shadow Rift a fair bit. If you're in the market for a co-op deck builder, it's pretty good, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm a little disappointed in the, in the continued policies they've got there. Yeah, they need to figure it out. Also on the news of expansions... What's Your Game is putting out two expansions for two of their games. They're going to be running a Kickstarter, so I'm hoping I can get in on my usual giant bundle deal and get both games and both expansions. The games are Madeira and Zanyo. Once again, probably brutalized both those pronunciations, but I'm sure you could find them out there. I've played, I haven't played Zanyo, but I have played Madeira. Looking forward to getting that whole package and seeing what they've done with the expansion. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. So let's move on to our feature game of the week, which is Teotihuacan City of Gods. Yes, welcome to our first two-hour installment of our six-part review of Teotihuacan. Mark, throw it in our timeline. (laughs) So this was designed by uh, Danielle Tashini. I would just like to point out something with respect to the attribution on BoardGameGeek. If you look it up on BoardGameGeek, they will say that it was designed by Danielle Tashini and David Turksey, which is kind of sort of true, only insofar as David Turksey uh, did some of the development work and he designed the solo version. But to the best of my ability to tell, the core game itself was not designed by David Turksey. So the, the attribution's a little bit, um, little bit scattered there. So Danielle Tashini is one of the Italian designers that we've been talking rather a lot about over the past uh, few weeks. When we talked about Coimbra, we discussed the fact that there's this core group of Italian designers who, who collaborate a lot. And Danielle Tashini, when he has collaborated with Simone Luciani, designed Tzolkin and Voyages of Marco Polo and Council of Four. And Voyages of Marco Polo, Polo is a favorite of us here at So Very Wrong About Games. Sulkin is very, very popular in lots of circles and very well regarded. Council of Four is probably the least well known of, of all those designs. But uh, City of Gods was not designed in collaboration with any of his other longtime collaborators. It was designed exclusively by uh, Daniel Tashini with, again, as we say, development work. This was put out by NSKN, which is an Eastern European outfit. And um, David Turksey, for what it's worth, uh, is an accomplished designer in his own right. He was involved in Anachrony, which was a kind of interesting uh, worker placement game with a post-apocalyptic theme. 
So he's no slouch himself. Just to the best of my understanding, he just didn't design the core game. So Walker, why don't you uh, tell us what one does in City of Gods? In City of Gods, your village has a major chocolate addiction problem and has reached epidemic heights to the point where your citizens will not go to work unless you feed them chocolate. And you can't show your workers favoritism. So when they get to work, you have to make sure they have enough chocolate to give all their co-workers as well. And guess what's for dinner? Chocolate. Chocolate everywhere. Yeah, no, my understanding was that the workers get to their work sites in the school bus. And the law of the school bus is if you bring any snacks, you have to bring enough for everybody. I guess that's the rule. So what you're actually doing in Teotihuacan is that at the beginning of your turn, you're deciding what you want to do with your workers. Because there's multiple things that you can do. You want to figure out if you want to do a, a group action because you're you know you're, when your workers are all together, they do a great thing. And if they're leveled up, they do even greater things. So do you want to get your level, your workers leveled up first? You have to take in consideration, like we just said, how many workers are in the spaces that you want to go and make sure everything is within your chocolate budget. And that's pretty well Teotihuacan. So the core, the core element here is a kind of super rondel. So we've talked about rondels before. Uh, the, the, the central rondel mechanism, as I understand it, is strongly associated with a lot of the games of Matt Gertz. So like Antico or Imperial or... Navigador or games like that, whereby there's a ring of action spaces and you can move clockwise on this ring to do an action associated with some spot that is clockwise from where you were before. But the way it's handled in Teotihuacan is it is further complicated by the fact that you have some number of workers, at the start you have three, you might get a fourth, that are occupying these spaces and you can move any one of them. And if multiple ones of them end up on the same space, you get to do a stronger action. And on top of that, your workers can have various let's say, strength. They're represented by dice. These are these are the kind of dice that you never, ever roll. They start out at one, and every time they do an action, most of the actions, uh, one of your dice will tick up. So they can range from one to five, because when they hit six, something else happens, and we'll talk about that later. So the core action selection is kind of a rondel on steroids. How do you like the core action selection? I, I love it. Like I was going to say, all of the best worker placements, in my opinion, are dice worker placements. Because I just love this fact that you're moving your dice around, they get to level up. When they get to six, you know, they're going to do this thing called Ascension, more on this later. And they can team up, like you've already talked about, to do better actions. I just Everything about this system, I enjoy considerably. I think it's very good as well. Most elaborations on Rondel systems I haven't enjoyed. Uh, you know, one, one example that comes to mind is uh, Shipyards, which had, yo dog, I heard you like Rondels, so I put Rondels in your Rondels so you can Rondel while you Rondel. And that just felt like too much. One of the virtues of, of many core Rondel systems is, it, it, is that it adds some uh, trade-offs and tempo considerations for different actions without being incredibly cumbersome. And at its best, Teotihuacan does give you that. There's this notion that, okay, I want to do this action now, but if I hold off and wait, I may be able to get more workers there or stronger workers there, or this action that I really want to do is too far away, so I have to worry about what I'm doing in the interim. All those good things come into play with respect to this uh, additional element. And on top of that, there's the fact that any action you do has a cost associated with how many other workers are there. And so you talked about the, 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 the cacao element, which is this kind of currency that you use to, to pay for your actions. At the best of times, if you show up in an action space where nobody, nobody is, you don't have to pay anything. But if you show up where other people are, or indeed where you have other dice, you do indeed have to pay. And 
if you run out, then you're kind of forced to more or less skip a turn, which is never particularly pleasant, but it is it does introduce interesting tempo considerations. Because that's in one of my bad points. I'll just reiterate that as well. You have to feed your workers to move them, and at the end of each turn, you have to feed them as well. And if you don't have enough, it's almost like you said, missing a turn. It's like, oh, I don't have enough. But we sort of, I've talked about this with somebody. You almost have to, even though you have, say you have a ton of chocolate, if a if an opportunity comes up, because yet another choice you have is that you can go to a spot and just collect chocolate. It's almost the, the same, or cacao. It's the same uh, addition almost as the cost, right? So you go there, you add up the color of workers, and you're going to get that much. So even if you have a lot, you have to seize the opportunity and say, oh, if I go take this opportunity now, I can get five. And even though I have a lot now, I'm going to take that hit now, so then I'll have a ton, so I don't have to worry about it ever again. Yeah, if you're smart, you collect cacao when you don't need it, when the opportunity presents itself. If you're an idiot like me, you go desperately searching for cacao when you realize you desperately need it, and then you do it very inefficiently. And that's fine. That That's, you know, a good trade-off of strategy. But can, can we talk a little bit about this whole notion of the cost of an action space versus the amount of cacao you get if you forego the action space? Because on paper, and this actually is going to be a recurring mild criticism I have of, of uh, Teotihuacan. On paper, it's very, very simple. If you show up to do an action space, what you do is you pay cacao equal to the number of colors of dice that were there before you showed up. Or you can forego doing the action, and you get that much cacao plus one. And indeed, I have no problem remembering the principle. But despite that, every time I've played, every player at some point, whether this was their first game or they've played several games, has had difficulty remembering how to apply it or not even difficulty remembering, has had di- some difficulty a- applying it. You know, they look at the action space and they put the die there and say, like, okay, this cost me three. Wait, no, it doesn't cost me three. That costs two. Okay, sure, fine. So it's one of those simple things that ends up being a little bit trickier than it needs to be. And this actually is going to be kind of a recurring theme about Teotihuacan. Clever and good, but a little bit trickier than it needs to be. I don't. And that being said, it might not be so much as, as it's tricky. It's the fact that you're already keeping track of 21 other things. Sure. So... so- Yet another mechanism, you know, on top of it, you know, is it, oh, is it how many dice are there, how many colors or how many pips or whatever it is, you know, what is it, you know, because I'm thinking about four turns ahead and all these other things and I need to be constantly reminded on how this works. I I respect that. It's just, it is striking. You, You have to concede. It is striking that everybody at the table at some point has a little bit. Uh, of difficulty remembering how this core action paying works. Yeah, I have no problem remembering, you know, what to pay. My problem is I just forget to pay it. It's like <laughs> I, I, I move there and I, I'm so eager to get the action done as I said, oh, wait, I forgot to pay for the actual, you know, space moving there and then I have to go back to do it. Sure. So let, why don't we talk a little bit about some of these action spaces? So there are eight different action spaces and we can talk about each one, but I think it all pretty well breaks down into gathering resources in order to build this pyramid. Essentially, Walker gave me very, very good advice when we sat down to play the first game, because when you first sit down to play Teotihuacan, and indeed if you read the rules, you'll get this experience as well, you'll drown in eight different action spaces that can be activated in a couple different ways in many instances. Uh, You know, the standard load of iconography for your medium weight euro, which is to say a fair bit, tracks upon tracks upon tracks, because every every modern game needs, every modern euro game needs tracks. I have a paragraph for this because it's in my bad thing, so... Too much busy work leads to, uh, so so many things lead to other things, so many things to keep track of, like we just said, eight different spaces to go to, three 
uh, other tracks that you have track of, much like Gaia Project or Terra Mystica. Well, five tracks if you count the other two. I was going to say Path of the Dead. Yep. Uh, There's a pyramid that you're building. There's masks that you have to keep track of. There's all of this going on. And like you said... We'll circle back back to that in just a moment, but I just want to just sort of reemphasize the good advice that, that you gave to me. And this, I think, is one of the virtues of Teotihuacan. At the end of the day, this is a game that you can sit down people in front of and say, look, there's a lot going on. When in doubt, build the pyramid. And that's exactly what you told me the first game. And it was great advice because it gave me something to focus on. And it let me acknowledge this is not necessarily the smartest way to play, but it's definitely a good way to play for your first game. It allowed me to sort of put blinders on and say, all this other stuff, this is the sideshow. This is what I need to do whenever I possibly can. And when there are lots of action spaces and tons and tons of different different goodies that you can collect, that's great for a new player. So the fact that it's amenable to that is great. And I, it's not always the dominant strategy. And it's not always the smartest thing to do, but it's a thing you can do. Circling back to your to your criticism about all, all this other little stuff. So I'm going to use a word that for many people is a little bit triggering. So here's a trigger warning for all you delicate little snowflakes no, snowflakes out in Eurogame land. Uh, this game is pretty fiddly. And I, what I mean by that in this specific context is a single action that you do on the rondel can involve paying the resource for taking the action in the first place, paying a secondary resource for activating another element of... of the action space, which in turn gets you a token, which you can then cash in to advance on a track, which in turn triggers something else. Then you do the core action itself, which might have all these other further consequences down the line. And this is not the exception to the rule. A lot of actions end up being like this. And you can end up forgetting, did I score for this? Did I pay for this? Did I get this other resource? Did I do this other thing? And all of these involve, you know, relatively subtle manipulations of very, very incremental things. And this this sort of uh, is, is exacerbated a little bit. And this this kind of feeds into how daunting it can be on a first play because winning scores in Teotihuacan are in the low triple digits, uh, sometimes, you know, approaching or in excess of 200. And so if you tell somebody, okay, if you go and do this action, it's worth a base of three points, that can be effectively meaningless. It doesn't feel like, uh, you know, a point salad point-mongering game like a lot of other games do, but the, the, the sort of signal-to-noise ratio can sometimes get out a little bit out of whack. Yeah, I just want to go into the same sort of thing with new players because it's the you score three times and there's a multiplier and it's a higher multiplier at the start turns. So for newer players, that's going to be a little harder to you know wrap their heads around because they don't understand exactly how the game's working or how you're going to get higher on these multipliers. Because for every step on the pyramid that you've you know you've built, your the first turn is times four and in path path of the dead the multiplier is higher at the beginning of the game because as you put buildings out, it goes down. So if you don't understand exactly how these things work, you're going to get very much behind very quickly. I think mostly, actually, the, the, the most daunting element is not so much that earlier points are worth more than later points, all things considered, because the pyramid points do start escalating. As, as the pyramid gets higher and higher, if, again, if you're focused on a building strategy, which, again, I recommend for new players... Later floors of the pyramid will give you more points than earlier floors of the pyramid. So that kind of helps a little bit with that. It's mostly just the the quantity of iconography that's involved. And sometimes the iconography is not particularly helpful. It's consistent. But so some of the numbers on some of the tiles, some of the values that are sometimes consequential and sometimes not are 
incredibly tiny and are printed in a uh, shade of brown that very much approaches the background color of tan. This is on top of a board that's already pretty graphically busy. The action spaces, I think, were also laid out in a not particularly usable way because there's not enough room on the action spaces for all these dice to just be sitting around. So you end up obscuring a lot of the information, you end up moving them around, and then sometimes you worry, you worry about whether the, the, the dice end up where they were supposed to be. Anyway, I think the game could have been more usable than it ended up being, and that certainly doesn't help for new players either. And this is on top of the fact that I think that the rulebook itself is very, very daunting for what can be a more straightforward game than it seems. Yeah, and then piled on top of this is that the turn mechanism is slightly odd as well. It's not just, you know, set number of turns. It can be uh, random as well. Every time, we've already talked about every time your dice ascends, this is as you move your dice around the board, almost every action space lets you, you know, turn your die up one more, which lets you do better actions. But once it hits six, it does this thing called ascension, where it... uh, pretty well dies you go up the path of the dead it goes to the palaces back to one and then you get a benny of some kind and then the very thing last thing you do is you advance that advances the turn track not only that every time the third the last player goes that also advances the turn track so depending on how many people ascend their dice that turn that could drastically shorten a turn length or make it extra long if nobody if everyone just you know spaces out their ascensions And it's also advancing the turn track for both ascensions and at the end of a complete round of turns. Those are easily forgotten things. And again, just adds to the general sense of component upkeep that the game encourages. So let's talk a little bit about Ascension. This this, this reminds me of something. And I, I almost never talk about this in the context of Euro games, but I actually found it quite striking in the context of Teotihuacan. The theming is a bit weird insofar as the game itself... In terms of what's in the rulebook, because I, I did the stupid thing and tried to learn the game from the rulebook, it doesn't even mention where Teotihuacan is. It doesn't even begin to mention anything about it. It doesn't talk about anything about the culture or anything. It just says, there's this place called Teotihuacan. And then it goes on to standard Euro boilerplate. You're a powerful family and you're trying to get prestige, blah, 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 essentially meaningless. So I had to go look it up. I didn't know if it was Aztec or Proto-Mayan or Incan or whatever. And, you know, it's it's pre-Incan, possibly Proto-Mayan, so for what it's worth. And this, this whole notion of ascension of the dice also is kind of bizarre. I didn't understand what it was supposed to mean thematically. We infer that the worker is dying because... When the worker goes to six, it gets removed from the board, and you advance on the Path of the Dead. But the Path of the Dead is just the name of the major street that ran down the middle of Teotihuacan. So are they... What did this Ascension mean? Like, they could have just called it retiring. If they'd called it retiring, I would have zero questions about what was going on. But Ascension makes no sense to me. And... You know, this is this is one of those areas where I really do appreciate those little sidebars that you can put in rule books saying, oh, by the way, when we're talking about ascension, this is what we mean thematically for what's going on. I, I personally would have appreciated that. Very, very minor quibble, but that so you have it. So we touched on the Gaia Project or Terra Mystica tracks. There are three different gods that you can worship. And there's all, like we said, all sorts of different ways you can go up on these tracks. One's going to give you extra cacao, one's going to give you victory points, and one's going to give you free materials as you go up. And just like uh, Terra Mystica and Gaia Project, if you get to only one person can be at the very top, and if you get, you know, second to the top, then you're going to engage these even more end-of-game scoring opportunities, even more st- stuff to keep track of. 
With all this going on, it is, I think, a minor miracle that Teotihuacan feels as focused as it does feel. And this is, I think, high praise uh, for the game. It, the fact that it doesn't end up feeling like a point salad meandering experience where you just go around and get whatever you want is, I think, very impressive. And this is true whether you decide to focus on buildings, whether you decide to focus on stairs, whether you decide to focus on one Ma- track or another. Or masks. Or, or masks. There, you know, there's a number of different ways to do it, but at the end of the day, it feels relatively focused despite the sheer volume of stuff that's going on. And as as people who regularly listen to the podcast know, I do not like it when Euro games especially, but, but designs generally, feel just unfocused and I don't feel like I have any general purpose and I'm just wandering around getting the low-hanging fruit wherever it happens to be. So, you know, kudos to Teotihuacan for that. So another a good point I have is that it's going to be different every time you play it because there's all sorts of counters in this game. So here's here we go. Techs. You have techs that you have to keep track of every time. When you land on different spaces, you're going to get this advantage. The end-of-game victory point tokens that I just talked about, they're going to be different every time. The action spaces, you actually shuffle them out and you put them on different sp- spots of the board. That's going to drastically change how the game is played. The step tokens on how they you know come out, same thing as the building tokens. It will change... Because there was a couple times in the game we just played where it's like there was no advantage to going to the building space because of the building tiles that were there at that point. Same thing with the, the step tokens. Then there's the there's these gray tokens, which populate multiple places all over the board. The, the different tracks, the Path of the Dead, the three different god tracks, uh, a whole bunch of uh, spaces on the board that you lock your guys into that we haven't even talked about. So all those gray tokens are going to be different every turn. It has a very interesting... Uh, starting tile system at the very beginning of the of the game everyone gets four of these tiles you pick two of them it tells you where your workers are going to start it also gives you a starting income and also maybe pushes you a little bit on a certain track it very much did today one of my tiles said you're going up the path of the dead right off the hop i said well this is the way we're going to go and then there's the palace tiles there's the you know, uh, action space number one is the palace. It's where your guys go after they send back to number one. And there's these three tiles that change every game that you lock your dice into that give you, you know, different ways to either score points or get resources. So all of these things change every game and have the opportunity to make it a different experience every time you play it. A lot of those differences... I have personally found to be relatively superficial in the way that lots of varying setups for games like this tend to be, which is fine. The one difference that I think is very consequential and I quite like is, just as you said, the way the action spaces are arranged. Because it's a spatial system, because it's a rondel system, whereby you can move only up to three spaces clockwise, where a resource space is relative to the thing that you buy with that resource will be very, very, very determinative about how you want to pursue victory. And that that is the part that I most in, most appreciate about the variability of setup. I will say though that I'm getting a little bit tired of Euro games with tracks. I, I don't know what it is. I mostly, I mean, I want to blame Stefan Feld, but I don't think it's his fault. I actually mostly think that it's Terramistica's fault. Every Euro game now has to have tracks, lots of tracks. You advance up tracks. Well, I think the last game with tracks that I really, really, really appreciated the way that used tracks is Goa, and Goa was published 20 years ago. So let's go back to locking your dice because we haven't really talked about it. Many of the action spaces have a way you can lock in your dice, so therefore it will be locked in there until you unlock it. And it will give you the option of doing two different things, probably getting a mask, getting a token of some kind, going up a track. You can either forgo your turn and unlock all your dice, or 
play three cacao and unlock all your dice. So it's yet another option, another way to get more tokens, another thing to do. The whole issue of locked versus unlocked dice, I think, is one of those things that really could have been excised from the design without doing too much violence. And I think you would have gotten a couple of serious benefits from that. I think, for one, the rules load would have been considerably lighter, both because you don't need to start talking about how dice get unlocked, and you don't have to worry about how the action costs are differently impacted for taking actions based on whether dice are locked or unlocked. And again, as I said, to circle back to my comment on how the action spaces, I think, weren't very physically well designed, the locked dice do not impact the action costs or cacao benefits for foregoing an action, but they're right there on the same tile, and they're typically only a couple centimeters apart. Yes, there's a specific action space for them, but it's not like there's a specific action space for the other dice. So there's this weird asymmetry there, and it ends up being a little bit usable. Anyway, I think... my feeble mind was not quite able to internalize the benefits of, you know, locking versus unlocking dice. And so it was, that was like the, the one mechanism too many that I mostly just ignored for much of the game. All right. So I hit most of my points going through most of the stuff. Now I'm going to just jump all over the place and go back to hitting some things that we, that we didn't hit. As in some of the good points, we briefly talked about the techs. There's six different techs you can get. And they change up every game. I think they really sometimes change, you know, how the game is played, either make it more accessible or harder or easier. And uh, it worked out very well. Then the when you're actually building the pyramid, there's this matching system where you look at the three different tiles you can build. And it's a, sort of like a spatial relations thing. You want to get to maximize all the symbols that you match up. And if they're colored, you even go up, you know, the god track. So that's interesting. Yeah, that 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 part in particular, and this is this is a purely personal thing. This is not a really a criticism of the game. It, it's this weird little spatial puzzle where you want to be able to take these different tiles and reorient them in a certain way and place them so that you maximize your points. But really, you're talking about eking out one or two or three more points max per placement. Usually, more just one or two, and the amount of mental work for me in terms of trying to exert that really didn't feel worth it. And so I just kind of gave up on trying to really maximize my benefit from that, mostly because I didn't want to make everyone sit and wait while I evaluated all the possible different things. If you really like tiling, where it's a question of eking out an extra little point by rotating this thing over here and shoving it over there, maybe you'll like it differently. But again, that that felt like, like I was just awash in a sea of weird icons, and I, I mostly was just willing to, to, to say, I'm just going to do this one thing and go ahead and get out while I can. And then there's the mechanism that they use for when you're p- playing with less than four players. Now, they've they've used this sort of mechanism in many games. I've seen it used this way. But for whatever reason, I really feel it works well in this game. All you do is turn over two of those starting tiles that we've talked about. You put the colors that you're not using. And we've said about how it costs more to go to the space if there's dice there. So it just makes the populates the board and makes some of the spaces uh, mo- cost more. And that changes up every turn. It's something that's quickly done. Unlike these other scenarios you go through in games when there's a player missing, you have to go through these all these different steps. This is a nice, easy way to go to it. Agreed. And the last thing I have here, it's literally written, you get to build a freaking pyramid. The pyramid is very visually impressive. I don't know what it is, but there is something really visually appealing about those very stark white wooden tiles that you used to build the pyramid. It, it, it It's quite attractive. In a game that I think is often just overly busy, visually speaking. And even though these pyramid tiles are indeed festooned with icons upon icons, it is quite visually striking to to walk in to see that nice little step pyramid being built. I I think that's quite neat. So all that being said, I am going to keep Teotihuacan for 
a little bit longer because I'm going to be looking forward to many more plays. Just for these reasons, you can play a different way every time. Like there's, you know, like Mark said, you can go for building the pyramid. You can go to collecting masks. You can shoot up the path of the dead. It's right in my wheelhouse where you can plan several turns ahead. This thing, you know, where it's like I'm going to leave this dice here and then slowly slide the other ones around and do this like triple action. Or, you know, you say, okay, you know, here will be a four, here will be a five. And now, you know, you get, you know, planning ahead. And like we said, building a giant pyramid. I enjoy Teotihuacan. I will not object to playing it more in the future. I think it's a little overbaked. It's still pretty focused, but I think it's a little overbaked. It's got a little bit too much going on that doesn't need to be there. Uh, it's got a lot of little things to keep track of that are easy to get missed, but it is the case that the central action selection mechanism is really compelling, I think, and it is the case that that action selection mechanism is heavily impacted by the random setup of how the action spaces are distributed, and that really helps with the replayability. So I think that Teotihuacan is a very solid design, but I wouldn't necessarily call it top tier. And that is Teotihuacan from NSKN Games. Now on to our topic of the week, which is how far is too far. And I'm going to start off just with my worst one. Okay, I'm going to build up to my worst one. Because, you know, I'm sure at the time I'd try to justify it many ways. <laughs> I'm going to set the stage. It's Paint us a picture, Walker. I am. It's, it's 2007. This is pre-Kickstarter. Were people even alive back then? They were. They were. It was it was a rough time of dinosaur hunting and and punch card pushing. No, it wasn't all this bad. But what there was was is our mutual love of HeroScape, I'm sure. And the new giant HeroScape expansion is announced. And it's going to be released at Gen Con. And here we are in Kingston. This is not a time where when a game is released, you get it two or three months after. This is a time when you might not see it at all. If not, it will be two or three years later. So I pack up the family with the justification that this is going to be a family vacation off to Gen Con. <laughs> this is how I tried to justify it. While we're in Indianapolis, we'll go to all these different places and see these different things in the thriving metropolis that is Indianapolis. And while we're there, I might just happen to drop in at Gen Con and pick up our new HeroScape game. Oh, wow. But not only that, when I finally got to uh, Gen Con and I get in the line to get my HeroScape, I see how many they're giving away and I see how long the line is and realize that after all of this 13-hour drive and everything else, I'm not going to be getting my HeroScape game. And some gentleman comes down the line and says, hey, I'm selling this HeroScape game for 50 bucks." I jump right in and say, yep, grab the game, and out the door I go with my new HeroScape box. Was it actually an expansion, or was it just no, one of the promos that they were handing no, out? No, it was the new giant box that they put out. Uh, Swarm of the Marrow? Swarm of the Marrow box, yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was a solid standalone box. Yeah. Exactly. Well, at the time, okay, so I'm glad that you led with Gen Con because I really think, so I'm going to be saying a lot of things that I've done over the course of the years. And I think for context, it's important to note that for some reason, if you go to a convention almost exclusively for the purpose of buying things, and I'm not saying that everyone who goes to conventions does so on those, on those pretexts, but there are people who do and there are people who do that sometimes, that's considered okay. 
but sometimes all these other one-offs that happen, that, that's just the act of a, of, of a crazy person. Uh, but I, I went to Gen Con once. That was back when I already knew that I hated travel. And I'm using the word hate about travel here. And it's not just getting from place to place. People often assume that when I say I hate travel, it's that I hate flying or whatever. I, I don't mind flying. I don't like airports, but that's probably because I don't like police states. And... I, I just hate being away from home. I'm that boring. I like my home. I like being home. I like being surrounded by my things and my toys and the people that I know. And I know where the toothpaste is and I know where, where everything is and all my stuff is there. It's where all my stuff is. Anyway, uh, but I went to Gen Con uh, almost almost exclusively to get to the new, uh, the new releases because that's back when I, I thought that in order to have any kind of credibility on the interwebs, you had to be able to review the newest, latest thing. And of course, I was punished for this hubris by nobody taking me seriously because if you don't like something, it must be because you just don't understand. So now I'm much more content with a more sedate release schedule where I talk about not liking a game that's two years old and people say that I don't understand what I'm talking about because if I, if I understood the game, I would like it. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I mean I, I went to Gen Con largely to get things. That was stupid. It was a mistake. I don't think I'll be doing it again. I liked the people. The people there were mostly nice. It's very busy at Gen Con. It's very busy at Gen Con. <laughs> and then and there's lots of lines there. Not only is a line to get into the main hall, but then when you get into the main hall, there'll be a lineup to get your game and then more lines to get out and lines. Lines upon lines upon lines. Uh, but the same, the same is true for what it's worth of amusement parks. And I, I don't mind amusement parks. Maybe if after I get my free promo, they put me on a roller coaster, I would enjoy gaming conventions more. It's true. This is probably not for broad appeal, though. One thing that I used to do all the time back when I lived in Toronto is there was uh, a local... So there were a number of, of great local game stores that I were, that were within walking distance, but there was an online game store that didn't have a physical location yet, and they had this... A situation whereby you could pick up an order, very much like a lot of other brick-and-mortar game stores that have websites. But they didn't have a brick-and-mortar website, so you basically drove to this guy's house. And there were these windows where you could go pick up your game. And the windows were such that basically, thanks to the miracle of Toronto traffic, you get to, you got to drive in traffic and still... Uh, have to show up at some guy's house at like ten o'clock in the evening. So it was, it was, it was, it was somewhat weird. But you know, you got two benefits out of this arrangement. Number one, you got to save the eight bucks in shipping. Now you pay twenty bucks for gas, but you'd save eight bucks for shipping, and that's the kind of economy that I will always take because I'm an idiot. But more importantly, you got things sooner. You didn't have to wait for the delay of them packing it up and then mailing it across town. I mean, I, and, and also, to be fair, I got some really great games out of this arrangement. I got Assault on Doomrock out of this. I got Warfighter out of this. I got a ton, tons of great stuff. And then they opened their own store shortly after I moved away from the city. And so that was, that, 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 that was, uh, that was a shame. But that was a lot of driving. Also, while I was in Toronto, I drove for an hour to get the Polish version of Mysterium from an in-person trade. There was somebody who was trading it, and this was uh, a couple of years, actually, before the American version got released. So not only did I get it sooner, but I ended up getting the version that I prefer. And uh, he wasn't willing to ship, so I had to, I had to drive uh, for an hour to do that. Don't regret that either. Still feel a bit, a bit like an idiot for having done it, but I, 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 still, I still enjoy it. I made that sacrifice for a listener. They said how great Archipelago was. I found a person in Toronto uh, four hours away, and I drove drove out to get Archipelago. You know, I might have, you know, picked up a couple of other games that were waiting for me there. But, but that being said, you know, I made the sacrifice for our listeners to get a game. 
<laughs> well, no, this wasn't. But okay, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call BS on this a little bit because this isn't the case of a listener who said, "Could you please cover this game?" This was a listener who said, "This game is great. You should try it." Yes. This so this was, was selfish. This was fundamentally selfish, Walker. You weren't doing this for the listeners. Yes, I was. <laughs> the other story I have, I've already talked about before, but for those who haven't heard it, it was back, I think it was the very first, you know, big out of, you know, not Axe and Allies new miniature game out there was Space Hulk back when, I don't know, in the U.S. they still write checks, but in Canada no one writes checks anymore. So, you know, I wrote the check out or got my parents to write the check out for $100, which was, I'm sure, about $300 back then, mailed it away and, you know, you know, Six weeks later, Space Hulk comes in the mail. Yeah, that that was kind of like a sneak preview of what Kickstarter is like. Exactly. You have to engage in dodgy financial transactions for uncertain return, and maybe something will show up at some point, and maybe not. You know, in hindsight, not so bad. Yeah, I can't. I, I for the for the life of me, I I cannot think of how I got the phone number for the gaming store in some small town in the states. I do not know how I did that. How did anyone find out anything I back did, in the day? I, I had no idea. Yeah, maybe I must. Have, maybe I got it from a White Dwarf magazine or something. I I don't remember. Like a central directory of stores. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. So I mean, obviously, sometimes it's just money, right? This is this is necessary for for contextualizing what we're talking about here. And just sorry, uh, as a minor note, I am sick and tired. Whenever anyone on Board Game Geek or anywhere else shows up and says, "I'm a little bit disappointed that this game costs so much." And then a whole bunch of people start marching in very, very condescendingly, very holier than that. It's like, well, you know, you're not just playing for the components. You're paying for development time. You're paying for the hard work of the designer. I'm sorry. That's all true, technically. But it's beside the point because you don't cost things on a curve based on how hard the designer worked. I've played lots of games where the designer was carefully crafting the game for for over a decade. And they still cost the same as the guy who slapped something together in a couple weeks. You are paying for development time, but not really. Anyway, sorry, just setting that aside. I I still drive to the U.S. for trades. You know, I was an ample trader when I lived in the States, uh, but I haven't lived in the States for the past three years. Back when I lived in Toronto, driving to the to, to U.S. for brief visits is not what you would call convenient because there's this, uh, you know great lake in the way but now that we're uh now that, we're, now that i'm in kingston the border is only about a 45 minute drive away so the number of times when i've crossed over the border is uh, very very frequent you know so so 45 minute drive each way not counting the border there though the cost of gas is in a strange way kind of offset by the fact that i get cheap gas in the u.s it may not be cheap gas for the u.s but compared to how much ga- gas costs here it's definitely cheap gas but uh, i have gotten very st- i've had very very strange conversations with border guards about board games I'm sure they think you're a pack mule. They they bring up your license plate and see that you go over like every other week. They wonder what what's going on. Well, I, I have had to give sort of five second elevator pitches to men with guns about board gaming as a hobby in order to try to convince them that what I'm doing is not some sort of side hustle or some weird, you know, legal marijuana muling. Pyramid scheme. Yeah. And I I was actually really concerned on that topic. I was very concerned that the border crossing might be seriously complicated by the recent legalization of recreational marijuana in Canada. But I really shouldn't have been that worried because although I find interactions with armed individuals who can exert considerable power over you for no reason and with no accountability, I find that somewhat nerve-wracking. It is a relatively low-key border crossing. The only change that I noticed 
after the legalization of marijuana was just a, an electronic sign a few hundred yards from the border saying no cannabis at border crossings. And that's it. That's all they did. Just, they just put a sign. I've never been asked if I was carrying any. They haven't, you know, it's just the, the standard. I'm here to pick up a package. It's a board game and that's it. Yeah, they should just put up what a, a person that we both enjoy. Don't be stupid, stupid. Yeah, exactly. I think that's very much the attitude so far and I hope it, it stays that way. I understand it's been a little bit different. For what it's worth, I understand it's been a little bit different at some other border crossings, uh, particularly ones in the prairies where some of the border crossings are very close to, 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 to more major towns. But anyway... There was one experience that I had a couple of years ago that was very unusual for, for board gaming, and that's when I was trying to order my copy of the first printing of Mechs vs. Minions, you know, having to go onto a web store that was crashing and constantly hitting refresh. That was unusual. I hadn't done that in a long time, and certainly not for a board game. It's true. I, th- that reminded me of, that is another story. That's the first time that I've actually brought my hobby sort of to work. I was like sitting at my desk at work, you know, the employees are sort of doing their thing. I, they probably think I'm over here, you know, doing the scheduling or ordering thing. And I'm actually hammering on the refresh button, trying to get my order in for Max versus Minions. I understand that a lot of people who were very obsessed with early birds for Kickstarters, back when Kickstarters used to do early birds, they used to do that all the time, right? You know, they'd wait for the launch of the Kickstarter and hit refresh constantly so they could get the early bird discount. I never went in for that. I mean, I'll pay the extra 10 bucks just not to have to deal with the hassle. But I am thankful that the whole early bird nonsense has kind of passed. I'm going to totally break out of this whole topic because you said Kickstarter reminded me of something that I have to talk about. Okay. And that is these new stretch goals of putting the bits into the box. Because the Reichbusters has it and the new Simon thing had it where, hey, stretch goals, we're going to put the stretch goals into a box for you. Oh. I bet you you're worried that the postal worker was going to show up to your door and pour the miniatures into your hands. But no, <laughs> just in, we're going to put it in a box for you. Well, gee golly, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Being as charitable as possible, I'm sure that Coolmany or not looked at the effort they went into to designing the Shogun box for all the expansions for, for Rising Sun and said, hey, maybe we should get some credit for this. <laughs> but yeah, I agree with you. It is a, a bit of a nonsense stretch goal. And anyway, all, all this, the reason why Walker suggested this topic, and this may actually be a foreshadowing to something that we'll be talking about in future weeks, where I'll possibly talk far too long about a somewhat longer game that Walker doesn't really care about. So, <clears throat> as I've mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a, a big appreciator of Francis Tresham's game Civilization, and there was a very strange project called Nega Civilization, which did a number of things. For one thing, it was a sort of a re-implementation of some of the advanced civilization changes, but with an interesting twist on it. I, again, I prefer base civ to advanced civilization. I... I, I but uh, And Mega Civilization is very much in the advanced civ mold, but it has some differences that I was interested in trying out. Uh, and it goes up to 18 players, which is kind of ridiculous and unnecessary, but you can play it with, with fewer numbers of players as well. Anyway. A Why cup- would you? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily see that happening. But I was interested in, in trying it, but it was a relatively limited release. Very expensive product, very big box. It kind of dribbled into some retail channels that I had access to, but they, those copies immediately disappeared. And every time they did, I was like, eh, I probably should have jumped on that. I'll admit it. A lot of this is driven by what other people would derisively call fear of missing out. It's not really fear of missing out. It's just that it's more the notion that I genuinely enjoy having these physical possessions. It's not just the fear of the opportunity cost is that I genuinely appreciate having these collections. We've talked about this before. I am a superficial materialistic individual and I genuinely like having these things. 
And if you have the means, why not? I mean, yeah, look, at the end of the day, the moment you start scrutinizing any optional purchase, it's all going to look frivolous. And I'm not going to assert that what I'm doing is less is 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 not particularly frivolous. It's very frivolous, but I will defend frivolity in, in many contexts, even if it's not a frivolity that I recognize. Anyhow, so Mega Civilization came and went a couple times, and then there was some announcement that they were going to parcel it into an Eastern Civilization version and a Western Civilization version, so slightly cheaper, slightly smaller ones, so you didn't have to go all in for the Mega Civ. But that got kiboshed by a lawsuit, apparently, and now there's been radio silence from the developers ever since. So when I was in a game store in Montreal a couple weeks ago, in a mall of all places, they had a copy of Mega Civ on the shelf, and I went, wait a minute, this might be my last chance. I thought about it for a while. I didn't jump on it at the time, partially because I'd gotten to that mall by public transit, and I did not want to carry a massive wooden box full of civilization stuff back by public transit to my car, which was parked at a train station. I thought about it, I thought about it, and I gave them a call, and it was honestly the call on the telephone that cinched it, that cinched my decision that I had to go get this copy of Mega Civilization. I called, and this was in French, and many of you do not understand the language politics of Canada, and many of you probably don't care. And many of you don't understand what it is to be an Anglo-Quebecer and always have the sense of inferiority about the quality of your own French. But I call and I ask the person, this is all in French, I understand you have a copy of Mega Civilization, is it in English or French? And he goes and he checks and he comes back and he says, I'm sorry, sir, it's in English. And what this did was, just for context, what this did was this communicated to me his perception that I was a Francophone. And that made me feel good about myself. And then he said, but in consolation, I can tell you that it's on sale. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm doomed. So all of this is to say that I did spend six hours in a car a few days ago just to go get a copy of Megasiv and to spend some time in downtown Montreal, which is the city of, uh, which, which is my home city. And I did enjoy that. Did I feel stupid about it? Oh yeah. Do I feel stupid about telling you all about it? Probably. But I at least hope that some of you are crazy enough to understand why I did it and not judge me too harshly as a result. So that, that, and that is, I think, even though Gen Con was more expensive and more time consuming, that at least, you know, a convention atmosphere, it, 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 it's slightly more acceptable. Uh, my trip to Montreal to get Mega Civilization is definitely the stupidest and the farthest I've ever gone for a board game. I'm looking forward to playing it, though. Are you really? Yeah, Are you, and, you're not and, just and the, seven, and the 17 other people. It's going to be great. <laughs> I thought you were being sincere for half a second. I am, no, so it's Civ. I am actually looking forward to <laughs> okay. it. Yeah, no, you, 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 we enjoyed our game of Civ. You guys yeah, liked it. And, exactly. uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that when it comes to longer games, you know, the three-plus-hour games, I have some degree of credibility for picking enjoyable ones that, 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 that people like to play. That's why I'm looking forward to playing Axe and Ally Zombies. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, it's definitely going to be, in terms of favorite World War II games, it's going to be Triumph and Tragedy, and then Axis and Ally Zombies. Just definitely shoulder to shoulder. So that just closes up for our topic of the week, which uh, could be subtitled Mark's Confessions. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. 
You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.